welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown podcast, where information is king, drinking is mandatory, and the beer is always flowing. Now, let's check in with your hosts and see what's on draft in this session. Welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown podcast, session number 24. In this session, I got the chance to sit down with Sean O'Sullivan from 21st Amendment. One of the two founders of the brewery, Sean has a lot to say about how the brewery was founded, a lot about their beer, and where they're going and how they're bringing their production brewing back to San Francisco. Some pretty cool stuff. Before we get into this show, though, I wanted to cover a couple things that are changing around Craft Beer Academy. First, if you head to craftbeeracademy.com, you'll notice the site looks a lot different than it did a couple days ago. Uh, We're updating the site, making everything look a little bit better, uh, work a little bit faster, and hopefully allow you to find the content that you want a little bit better. It's a work in progress. There are some things changing. If you see anything that looks funny, by all means, uh, hit me up on Twitter or send me a message through the site. If you've listened to the show from the beginning, you probably noticed that the show started off coming out um, two, three, even four times a month, and sometimes went a month, maybe more, without a show coming out. While there were some good excuses for that in the past, uh, there aren't any more now. So, as of this episode, session number 24, the Craft Beer Showdown podcast is becoming a one-time-per-month podcast. Episodes are going to come out the first Wednesday of every month at noon. So... You should know when to expect the show, and I have enough time to produce it and make sure that it is the show that you deserve and the show that I want it to be. Also, session number 24 welcomes our very first sponsor of the Craft Beer Showdown podcast, Craft Brewed Clothing. Craft Brewed Clothing offers a variety of t-shirts and work shirts and sweatshirts that run the gamut of cool craft beer shirts to breweries that probably you haven't heard of. If you're anything like me, the more obscure the brewery t-shirt is, the better it is, because that means you're probably one of the only people around that has it. So, to celebrate us getting our first sponsor, we're giving away a couple things. First, you can save 30% at craftbrewedclothing.com on any purchase. Uh, All you have to do is type in the promo code CBAFANS, that's C-B-A-F-A-N-S, and you'll instantly save 30%. Next... Since we're transitioning to a one-time-per-month show, we're going to give away a one-month trial membership every episode to the Craft Brewery T-Shirt Club so that you get a T-shirt, sticker, coaster, and some other cool stuff from Craft Brewed Clothing sent to you. Uh, You can sign up for one-month, three, six, even 12-month memberships in the site and get a new shirt all the time. But we're going to give away one of those for free every month so that you can at least try it out and see what it's all about. Uh, If you're like me, you'll end up signing up for it. Next, to celebrate Craft Brewed Clothing being our very first sponsor, which we're extremely excited about, we're going to give away two six-month memberships in the Craft Brewery T-Shirt Club. Those memberships are each worth $110 a piece, and I'm going to give two of them away. All you have to do to enter is to be on the Craft Beer Academy mailing list. You can sign up for that in the sidebar of craftbeeracademy.com, and you'll get an email notification when the entry form goes up. Go to the link you get in the email, sign up to the entry form, and two lucky listeners will get six-month memberships in the club. That's six t-shirts, coasters, stickers, the whole shebang. Hopefully the promise of free stuff 
is enough to get you excited about this new sponsor. Finally, May marked the launch of a brand new beer website that I'm also running, PittsburghCraftBeers.com. It's a site that is kind of near and dear to me because well, I live in Pittsburgh and I do a lot in the craft beer world in Pittsburgh, uh, as everyone does with local beer because, like they say, local's best. So I'm going to move all of my Pittsburgh-centric content that everyone outside of Pittsburgh doesn't care about over to that site. If you're a listener in the Pittsburgh area, check out PittsburghCraftBeers.com. A podcast for that site will also be launching in June. Very excited to be talking to Penn Brewery, the oldest brewery in Pittsburgh, as the very first show. So, enough talking. Thank you very much for listening. I wouldn't be able to do this if it wasn't for people like you that listen to the show and read the site. You let me do some pretty cool things and talk to amazing people like Sean O'Sullivan from 21st Amendment. So, enough said. Let's get on with the show. So hi everybody, welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown Podcast. I'm very lucky today to be talking to Sean O'Sullivan from 21st Amendment Brewery, one of my more favorite breweries. So, Sean, hi, thanks for coming along. You bet, it's, uh, it's great to be talking to you guys, uh, Craft Beer Academy, uh, great stuff you guys are doing, and I'm excited to be here. Thank you, like I said, definitely honors all mine. I've, you know, ever since you guys uh, came to Pittsburgh, I've been a pretty big fan of everything you've done and most of all uh, beer in cans is one of my favorite things it's just i think it's the best thing for beer and it's a, a fight that i do it's a fight i fight every time i talk about it because people disagree with me but <laughs> well it, it's 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 a kind of a, a personal thing i appreciate you saying that it's a personal thing actually doing your show because my i've got a lot of relatives back in pittsburgh uh, and actually in pennsylvania so not in philadelphia so um and I'm always looking for a reason to get back there. So if you ever want to do this live, uh, I'll, I'll uh, jump on a plane and bring the beer. Hey, <laughs> you let me know when you want to come, and I can always make time. But, you know, you, you kind of hit the nail right on the head there at the beginning, uh, kind of to go back to what you were saying. Um, when we first started canning our beer in 2000, uh, I think we started doing it in 2007 out of our little 500-square-foot pub we have here in San Francisco, this little two-head filler from this uh, manufacturer out of uh, Canada called, uh, what was it called, um, uh, Cast Brewing Systems. Uh, they had a little two-head filler we had, and they, uh, they it would kick out about 20 cases an hour, and, um, you know, it was like milking a cow. We had these little two-fill heads hmm. and the steamer and all this. But, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the can and not about the liquid inside because people were always – you know, they were kind of freaked out about it. They didn't, you know, there was only a few players back then. Uh, number one was Oscar Blues, and they were, um, you know, you, you, you know, everybody was like pushed back on it because they were thinking that their first, you know, typically people's first beer maybe came out of a can, or if they had a canned beer, it was bad beer. We always just yeah. say that, you know, you know, bad beer is bad beer, and canned beer is just a package, and all the great things you hear about how about, you know, how good cans are for beer no light is allowed to enter the the package it's portability you can take it places you can't take uh bottles uh, 80 percent all cans are recycled so because of that it translates into some energy savings and also the energy savings uh extends to we're able to put about 110 cases on a pallet versus 90 or 70 excuse me for for glass oh wow so um yeah it's uh and they're fun they're cool i mean yeah, we we were never married to uh 
we never had a bottle uh, before this. So a lot of a lot of the breweries that are coming out right now who are bottle breweries, uh, bottling their beer, um, they're essentially translating that label onto a can. And we actually were able to have a lot of fun with it. So, you know, maybe your your listeners know, and I, I think I think you do too with mine, is that we have like really intense, beautiful graphic art on ours, and it kind of wraps all the way around the can. And uh, you're able to tell a story, you know, as, with the can as well as with the box package, box package that it comes in the six pack box, and uh, it's just been uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. But those early days, it, it was a uh, it was a lot about the package and not a lot about the beer. Yeah, and I I think that's it kind of is the same thing as um, you know in the opposite way with the kind of uh, the macro beer is. You know, they try to make a crazy, weird, interesting package to sell the the bad beer inside, you know, or the, the lesser expensive beer inside. And, you know, like you said, where you have amazing beer inside and you just, it's so hard for people to get past something as simple as a container. Yeah. But, you know, uh, you, you know, as much as we kind of bemoan the fact that we had to talk a lot about the can, it was actually kind of a point of... It differentiated ourselves from other uh, breweries. You know, yeah. able to talk more, engage the craft beer drinker, and you know, have a, a conversation with them about you know, and then it extends into the beer. And you know, and um, you know, we're excited about it. I mean, you know, I, I first got in a can or into can beer. Um, I think my first beer was Hams, actually, out of a can. But I used to collect beer cans um, way back when I was a kid. Okay. And funny story is that when I started canning our beer my parents shipped up the my entire like old like you know canned beer collection huh, nice. from up their basement and sent it up to me and they said hey you're you're doing this for a living now you can have your cans back <laughs> so that was pretty funny actually um yeah we got into we got into canning the beer uh in 2007 i was actually it, it was actually 2006 i was out at the great america beer festival you know, the big international or national beer festival in Denver, Colorado every year. And I happened to go out to Lyons, Colorado to Oscar Blues and um, saw what they were doing. And they're putting their, you know, their, their Dale's Pale Ale in a can. And I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. I, I like to tell people I kind of got struck by lightning that day. I was like, you know, the, the clouds parted, the sun came down on me. And I was like, this is what we got to do. Yeah. And so my business partner, Nico Freccia, and I had been talking for a while about how we can expand the business from our little pub there on 2nd Street in San Francisco. And um, I came back and I said, hey, Nico, I, I, I got this great idea. Let's, uh, the way we're going to expand our business is we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put our beer in cans and we're going to sell it uh, and, you know, we're going to distribute it, you know, to the, to the nation. You know, and, and honestly, he thought it was the dumbest idea in the world and then kind of looked into all those reasons why we uh, why uh, putting your beer in cans is great. You know, we talked about the portability, better for the beer, all those things. And really, you know, kind of decided that we wanted to do this. And that's when we bought that little two head filler and started canning um, our beer. And, you know, and, and it was just our two most popular beers at the time, which were watermelon wheat, and that's what we called it back then, and IPA, you know, pretty generic words. And, uh, you know, and they were kind of complete opposites in terms of the flavor profile. You have this, like, American-style wheat beer that's brewed with real watermelon juice and has this, like, kind of just accent of, um, of, of watermelon. And then you have, you know, our IPA, which is a West Coast-style IPA at, like, 7.2% alcohol and all the hops and malt. Um, that you'd expect, and uh, people loved it. They kind of gravitated to it, and so we um, 
we did that for I think about a year out of our little pub. I mean, and pretty intensive, very manual. And then we said, well, why don't we, you know, take this to the next level? You know, there seems to be some popularity here. And you know, the thing about it back in the day, uh, you know, the, re- the, the one of the hiccups to getting to market with canned craft beer is that there weren't a lot of canning machines available for small craft brewers as there were for bottling machines. And so, this company up in Canada, Calgary, Canada, craft. Uh, um, cast brewing systems was developing these small little, you know, canning systems. And, um, they also, they had a, a larger one, they had a five head filler. And so I managed to find a used one in, um, Indiana at a brewery that was not, was kind of going out of business. And our plan was to buy this, buy this canning line and drop it into a brewery in the Bay area that, um, that could have that had the capacity and we talked because we didn't have any money to build a large brewery and so we were also taking a model from kind of the early days of sam adams and pete's wicked ale pete slosberg is a good friend of ours lives out here in the bay area and you know where you're using where you're contract brewing where you're essentially utilizing the excess capacity at other breweries and um and so there were several breweries we talked to we talked to uh, gordon Biersch, we talked to firestone walker we talked to um, sued work out here in Davis and they really weren't set up for it. Nobody was really kind of, um, you know, had that model or business model. And so it was a little frustrating. So I said, you know, Nico, if we're going to, if we're going to, uh, you know, do this, let's really do it. Let's like find a brewery that has a canning line, um, and that was willing to allow us to come out and, you know, brew, do whatever we want. And so, uh, we I, we started calling around to some you know regional breweries in the Midwest, of which there are a lot of, that had candy lines and had excess capacity, and you know I called up uh, one day I called up uh, Cold Spring Brewery in Cold Spring, Minnesota, which is about 80 miles northwest of Minneapolis, and Mike can I picked up the phone to you know the old time brewmaster there, and I said hey Mike this is Sean I you know, I want to bring my watermelon juice. I want to bring my hops. I want to bring my, you know, all my crazy ingredients that we put in our beer. And I want to use my own yeast. And I want to brew it on your system and can it there. And he was like, oh, Sean, okay, yeah, we could do that. And so, <laughs> you know, uh, Nico and I headed out there in, I think it was 2008, uh, in the winter of 2008. These two guys from, you know, California <laughs> headed out to the Midwest. And we brewed our first batch of beer there. And, um you know, it was it, it was a struggle. I mean, we had it was a real struggle when we first started brewing out there. Um, you know, we like to call it partner brewing because contract brewing has this real like you know negative connotation because there's a lot of bad beer that came out of the whole contract uh, brewing kind of business uh, model in the late '90s where yeah. people were just you know designing labels and you know slapping on existing beer that was made out of a brewery and just, you know, really dumbing down the market. But we have full control over it. We're out there all the time. We have huge data stream that goes back and forth between um, uh, us and, uh, and, uh, and Cold Spring. We're out there a lot. We have people on site. And um, we, uh, we control the process every step of the way. So we call it partner brewing. And it's been pretty successful. Now, early on, the beers we had were not – as good as they are right now, they we were brewing on an old lager system um, that really wasn't set up to brew ales and not really set up to add kind of unusual ingredients. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, they never dry hopped a beer before. And so some of those early beers were really difficult. We actually kind of dumped a lot of beer. Um, and then they kind of, you know, moved along with us and we moved along with them. And uh, actually, you know, a couple of years ago, they 
they built a, a, a kind of a ground up uh, building with a brand new 75 barrel, you know, five vessel German uh, brew house with these, you know, beautiful chronicle stainless fermenters. And uh, the beer definitely has jumped up in quality since then. And uh, uh, they kind of took, we were the kind of the most successful uh, partner brewery. Um, we do probably about 90% of the beer of the beer they brew out there right now. Oh wow! And and their model is to you know to have like regional breweries, you know, just the name breweries not, that they're doing it there, like the Shoots or um, you know maybe East Coast breweries that are that want to expand their um, their 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 capacity and and sell beer or make beer in the markets that they're selling it in without without you know having to you know increase their home uh, footprint maybe they don't have enough space or anything like that so yeah you know there's several models out there uh, uh, businesses that are sort of building these regional breweries to contract brew or partner brew uh, for other breweries and so that's kind of their idea um, and their business model. They also have their own brand of beer right now called Third Street Brewery, which is actually doing very well. It's a, um, uh, it's, uh, and they're doing their IPAs and their um, porters and black IPAs and all that. So that's how we ended up there. We got and we were able to the, sort of the model allowed us to <clears throat> increase capacity without having to really spend a dime on you know capitalizing a brewery. So in 2008 we brewed a thousand barrels of beer, and last year we brewed 57,000 barrels of beer. <laughs> Um, it was a huge amount of increase in that short a period of time, and this year we'll brew about 75,000 with them. Um, it's really allowed us to sort of ramp up and really focus on, we'll focus on the beer part, you know, of course, um, but also on the packaging that we talked about and also drilling down deep in the markets that we're in right now um, to, uh, you know, make sure that the beer is sold. It's not enough to, like, just throw beer at a wall and hopefully people will, will, will buy it. you yeah. got to really work with distributors and all that. So um, that's the Cold Spring, Cold Spring Brewery story. So you mentioned that the uh, Hell or High Watermelon was one of your first beers, and you sent me a couple of them, so I figured what better time to open one of these. <laughs> um, you know, this really is one of my favorite beers with, you know, flavor added to it. I don't like a lot of those normally. Uh, there's one or two local to me uh, in Pittsburgh that are that are pretty awesome, um, but yeah, it, it, you know, interesting about the Hell or High Watermelon because it, it's, you know, a lot of times, and I won't name names because <laughs> you, know, you know it's like the big craft beer tent, and we want to be want to play nice together. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of breweries out there, not a lot, but several breweries that um, when they make a fruit beer, uh, they're adding an extract, they're adding something that isn't real. Um, that's you know they call it it's like natural flavoring and right. it, and it's 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 there's nothing you know close to the fruit that 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 flavor is but the neat and unique thing about the Hell or High Watermelon is well the base beer is an American style wheat beer and then we actually um, we add watermelon juice to the beer which and it's part of the fermentation so um, the yeast um, you know consumes the sugar and you know produces alcohol so you get a little bit of you know pick up uh, from, from the from the sugar from the, the watermelon juice as well so you end up with a beer that has a real dry flavor to it but it has this watermelon essence it's almost, it's really refreshing a lot of people think they're going to be drinking a jolly rancher like that candy yeah and it, it's not that way at all it's uh it's really a unique beer it's interesting because my business partner nico uh first brewed this beer 
as a homebrew on his apartment, you know, out here in San Francisco, and uh, it was great. I mean, he thought it'd be kind of interesting to try something, you know, use a different fruit, and, and gave it a whirl. And when we opened our pub in 2000, um, he came to me and he said, "Hey, what do you think about like brewing this watermelon wheat beer that I make?" And I was like, "Nico, nobody's gonna drink that crap." <laughs> and 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 so he kind of just let it go, and you know, uh, you know, because we were really focused on like kind of classic craftier styles, pale ales, porters, IPAs, stouts, things like that. And so the next year, 2001, I invited him out to, or invited him, I, I pulled him into the brewery, and uh, from floor to ceiling were cases of watermelons. Um, and I said, I've made an American-style wheat beer. Uh, I'm gonna, We're going to make your watermelon beer. And what we would do is, we we would cut the watermelons up and we would we scoop out the uh, the meat is what I call it, the red part of the watermelon and we got the the soup moule you know the big like blender that you you know you blend up your soups um, from the kitchen and uh, we pureed them up and then we add the watermelon in and uh, and uh, the beer was it was a huge success it was instant it was amazing um, it was we we would typically make that beer like March through October because uh, that's kind of when like the you know North America watermelon crop comes in and it's interesting because you know the, the the watermelons that initially come in they're kind of anemic and then the crop gets better as summer rolls around yeah and so uh, and it's funny because you know a lot of people kind of like the way you push back on a little bit you know initially when fruit beers or flavored beers. Yeah, you know, your big beer guys like you know, like your Imperial IPAs and your Stouts and all that. They, um, you know, they would they would kind of secretly come up to me and and you know they say to me, hey, hey, Sean, I just want to let you know that I really like the watermelon weed and whisper in my ear, and I'd be like, you're fine, it's okay, you're you're still hmm. a beer guy, you're gonna be fine, we're gonna yeah. get through this together. And now it's phenomenal. Now it's like we brewed so much more of that beer this year. It's just like wildfire during the summer. It's just. You know, we call it summer in a can. Um, and the cool thing about it, and I know that more and more accounts and beer bar, good beer bars and all of us are doing it, and we really recommend it, is that we serve it out in a Pilsner glass here. And we, you know, we put a slice of watermelon wedge right on the side of that glass. And the coolest thing in the world is, like, when you walk into the pub and you see, like, all these Pilsner glasses with these watermelon mm, wedges on yeah. it. And it's just, I don't know, it's just, yeah, it's not an IPA. Yeah, it's not, you know, um a, a stout or a porter or a sour beer or a Belgian beer, but you know, there's something about it. It's unique in itself, and I'm unapologetic about my uh, my love of that beer, and, uh, and and certainly the people that are drinking it are saying the same thing. Um, well, I think that's the thing about beer, just as a whole, is people can get a little bit too, I don't want to say stuck up, but stuck up on you know liking the super high alcohol or the certain specific styles, but you know, when it comes down to it, it's supposed to be about what you enjoy. And, you know, there's nothing yeah. wrong with enjoying something that tastes good. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, you're, you're a lot of people, and maybe they do that with you, uh, you as well. You're, you're a beer guy just like me. Um, and, you know, people say, well, what's your favorite beer? And I always just usually say you, probably the one in front of me. <laughs> exactly. And it could be anything. I mean, I'm unapologetic, uh, again, about my love of Coors Light. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that every, every brewer has a dirty little secret. That's my dirty little secret. You know, there's sometimes I don't want a, you know, a soda. I don't want iced tea. I don't want water. I don't want 
you know, a big IPA or something like that. And it's like fizzy water and it's perfect. And I, I like what it, what it is. You know, I don't, you know, I don't buy a lot of it, but um, I do occasionally have it uh, here at my place in San Francisco. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, you, you, you can't get too, you know, sometimes people, I think, take beer to, to an extreme that people get way too into it, which is great, but you got to just sometimes, you got to realize at the end of the day, it is beer and you should just enjoy it. Yeah, luckily for uh, us in Pittsburgh, we have a, a local brewery that does a really great uh, American lager that's yeah, just nice, simple, um, you know, along the same lines as like the American light lagers or the macro guys, but it's mm-hmm. a, a small uh, family-owned business. It's a straw brewery. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know those guys. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and they've been doing a lot of craft stuff lately too, which is great, but, you know, my I'm tired of IPAs right now beer is their lager. It's. I think it's the the best one for what it is. Yeah, you gotta. Sometimes you gotta give your, your taste buds a little break. Now that we just heard Sean's dirty little secret about what beer he likes when he's not drinking Twenty First Amendment, it's a good time to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, more from Sean O'Sullivan from Twenty First Amendment. Who doesn't love a new beer T-shirt, right? If you're listening to this show, you probably have a few T-shirts that show your allegiance to your favorite breweries, beer club, and craft beer in general. I know personally it's a hobby of mine to pick up a new t-shirt whenever I hit up a new brewery, especially out of town, so that I have a t-shirt no one else around me has. This is why the Craft Beer Showdown podcast has teamed up with our very first sponsor, Craft Brewed Clothing. Craft Brewed Clothing offers a variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and work shirts that you can buy from their site as well as memberships ranging from one month to a year in their Craft Brewery t-shirt club. Membership in the club gets you a new beer t-shirt every month, along with an info card, coaster, and a sticker from that month's brewery. As a special offer for Craft Beer Academy's listeners and subscribers, you can save 30% off any purchase at brewshirtclub.com until July 31st, 2014. Just use the coupon code CBAFANS, that's C-B-A-F-A-N-S, and you'll save 30%. To celebrate our new sponsor and to thank you for listening and subscribing to Craft Beer Academy, I'm giving away two six-month memberships. All you have to do is sign up for the Craft Beer Academy mailing list and you'll be notified when the contest entry form goes up on our site. Finally, we're giving away a one-month trial membership every show. All you have to do is head over to craftbeeracademy.com and look for this show's post and fill out the entry form that you find there. I'll pick one lucky listener every month from those entries. Full rules will be posted on craftbeeracademy.com slash brewshirtclub. Um, kind of, you know, going. we mentioned a little bit of the 21st Amendment history. Kind of going back to you for a minute, though, uh, since you're the kind of the, the, the heart of the beer, so to speak, at 21st Amendment. Um, I, I saw from doing a little bit of my, you know, research slash beginning of stalking, uh, <laughs> you used to be a paralegal and a photographer, and that then you went into beer. Yeah, I I, uh, I think that uh, I almost didn't find beer. I think it found me. I mean, okay. I I've had several kind of little careers, and you know, ever since I've been working. Um, you know, I uh, I started off as a photographer. I uh, I really that was kind of what I wanted to do. That was my passion. I love to take pictures still, but I mean, back then I was you know, trying to make a go of it. I worked for you know, a local weekly in, um, in, in down in Los Angeles in Southern California. I was taking pictures of like a lot of political stuff and, you know, like 
I remember shooting the L.A. riots when that was going on. It was pretty crazy oh, okay. kind of being involved in that. Wow. And then I did a lot of punk rock photography uh, kind of the clubs in L.A. And, uh, and loved it, you know, and really enjoyed it, had a great time. But I couldn't make any money at it. Yeah. And um, then I got a job as a CNN producer uh, down at the Los Angeles uh, Bureau, kind of an, as an extension of an intern, internship I did when I was in school back in D.C., I did that for about uh, half a year, but it didn't pay that well either. And a buddy of mine was working at this uh, this uh, in downtown Los Angeles for this big New York law firm that had an office there, and was doing really well. And um, I was like, "Well, I'm not making any money here. This is you know, <laughs> I'm not be able to pay the bills or anything like that." So I took this job as a paralegal and worked there for like six years, six and a half years. It was great in the sense that. They just paid me well, and they would kind of they fool us around, and it was fun to be in your mid twenty, early mid twenties, to be taking, you know, to have that kind of experience. But and then I was thinking, like, I wanted to go to law school or business school. It just seemed like a natural extension of where I was at. I was surrounded by this, kind of influenced by that. I get, I guess, and um, I, uh, I was, you know, I was just like, I don't know if I want to do this. I mean, the people that work here aren't really that happy. Yeah. And I, and around that time, I, I started home brewing. And I was just, I just was fascinated by the idea that, you know, you could do this at home. You could make, you know, beer at home. And there was a local homebrew shop in the valley I would go to. And, you know, I had, I got, you know, I had Charlie Papazian's, you know, uh, the joy of home brewing book. And, you know, I would, you know, plot, you know, go through that and read it and kind of get into it and try to, you know, then I buy some other books and had all this equipment and, then I was like, you know, I think I want to do this. And I, during um, when I was at the law firm, I actually kind of wrote a little mini business plan with a buddy of mine there who wanted to become a chef, not going to law school either. And like actually, Chris Robbins was his name. He ended up going back to Boston and becoming pretty successful back there and cooking. And, uh, and, and anyway, so, and I toured Northern California and been to like all the great craft breweries up here. And you know, went to Anchor like the back in the day when they were we would, they would release their christmas sale like the day after thanksgiving you know that was the day it would come out yeah. now everything comes out much earlier than that yeah, got a tour just fell in love with anchor brewing company if your listeners ever have a chance they have to go to anchor it is amazing i've probably been to that brewery a hundred times and every time i walk in there it is like mecca it's just beautiful the copper brew house the tile floor you know, the brass railing to go up to the brewery, their beautiful tasting room. You got to call in advance to make a, a reservation, but if you come out here, you got to go. You know, and I was pulled in. I was romanced by the whole craft beer scene up here. And there really wasn't happening anything. There really wasn't anything happening in Southern California in terms of craft beer at the time. So I decided to pull stakes up and move to Northern California. I was like around 29 or 30. And I was up here for about seven months, and down the street there was a brewery, a, a brew pub called Triple Rock Brewery, which was one of the first craft breweries, or brew pubs actually in the state of California when the law changed in 85 or 86, whenever it was. And I got a job there as an assistant brewer. And um, I mean, I just took right to it. You know, I was getting paid 6.20 an hour, which really was, I had a part-time job actually working in a legal department in a shipping company in downtown Oakland and so every day at three o'clock get on my bike and ride down there but uh, I worked there for two and a half years and it was amazing it was just great it was just one of the first like 
small craft brew pub breweries that had been built by this company called JV Northwest, which makes larger breweries now. It's a big company. Uh, it's a little seven-barrel system and uh, started by Reed and John Martin. And uh, I, I worked there for about two and a half years and kind of learned everything I could learn. And then they went and they hired me over at the they had a place in San Francisco called 20 Tank, which unfortunately kind of uh, isn't around anymore. It was kind of a um, it was a a victim of the uh, dot com boom where rents were raised and they were forced to go out of business with that place. But I worked there for a bit, then I started up Steelhead Brewing Company. Um, it's kind of a mini chain out here that started in Eugene, Oregon, and they were opening a place down at Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, and which has actually since gone out. They closed that place down. It was a Hooters for a little bit. <laughs> it was, actually did better than we did. You know, and um, so I worked at these places and had an opportunity to install this brewery with Steelhead and uh, had met my business partner, Nico, early on, actually, when I first moved up to the Bay Area. And he was living in Southern California in the same area I did, but I did not know him. And he moved up uh, to get involved in craft beer as well. And he was writing for the Celebrator Beer Magazine. Um, okay. Out here is a kind of Northern California rep. And he was, you know, going around and interviewing brewers and visiting brew pubs and breweries. And he came in and I gave him a tour of Triple Rock, which was really early on. And then later we uh, met that summer. Um, he was writing an article uh, on the brewing programs at UC Davis. And um, I, uh, I happened to be taking a couple of those courses out there. And we kind of became friends. We, you know, took this, we were lab partners in this sanitation and uh you know microbiology beer biology course and um i invited him out to brew with me to be the guest brewer at uh at triple rock one day and you know as all guest brewers do maybe some of your listeners have done this you you, you you're responsible for cleaning the mash tun you got to pull the grain out <laughs> so you know he was up there pulling the grain out um out of the mash tun and i i said hey well what do you what do you want to do for the rest of your life and i said i want to I want to open a brewery, a brew pub. And he said, I want to do the same thing. I said, well, we can't have two brewers. But Nico had been a, um, a theater major, actually, at Northwestern. And that's what he was doing in L.A. at the time, was trying to be an actor and all this. Uh, and so what do actors do when they're not going you know, to get paid to act? They, they work in restaurants. They manage restaurants. Yeah. And he had done his fair share of that. And so he said, well, I can, you know, I know how to run a restaurant. I've, you know, opened them and managed them. And so I'll do the front of the house and you be the brewer. And that's kind of the, that was the spark of the idea that kind of was the 21st Amendment. And, uh, and we, you know, we took a long time and uh, we took a long time to write that, that business plan and kind of get to know each other, you know. Mm you know, you're, when you get involved in business with somebody, a partner, you really, it's almost more intense than a marriage because, you know, there's the financial aspect that's really important and you want to be successful with that. So we got to know each other really well and really honed the vision and idea of the 21st Amendment. Um, it's interesting, people ask, like, well, how did you come up with the name, the 21st Amendment? And we're, we opened up in 2000, um, but we probably started the project in 1998. We, we were looking in an area. We wanted to open this in San Francisco, and there really wasn't a whole lot of places that were large enough to have a, you know, a little production brewery, which is what a brew pub is, and also have a restaurant and where the rents were cheaper. And so there's this area um, just uh, south of the downtown financial district called South of Market, 
uh, Market Street's kind of what you know, bisects the city. And uh, we were looking down in the, the south of Market area in San Francisco, and where the rents are cheaper, and there's you know, there's larger spaces to put in a you know a brew pub, you know, yeah. with a, you know a small production brewery. And um, we 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 looked at several buildings down there, and uh, we found the, the space we're currently in, and we were looking for a name because we didn't really have a name yet. Um, we were, you know, looking uh, kind of back and looking at old like white pages from like pre-prohibition. There were something like forty some odd breweries that existed in San Francisco during that time, and of course, you know, prohibition wiped that all out back in 1920, and but what we found is that the names at the time were kind of, they weren't that interesting. It was like, you know, the U.S. Brewing Company, the yeah. Standard Brewing Company, the Phoenix Brewing Company. It just didn't resonate with us. So it dawned on us that we were kind of looking at, um, in a time, in an era, that could be, you know, captured by the name the 21st Amendment, which is the repeal of prohibition occurred you know, December 5th, 1933. And so once we, it was like, again, like lightning. And it was like, this is a great name. Yeah. And nobody had been, nobody had really used it. And so, um, that was the name, you know, and and it kind of stuck with us and it kind of fit into a little bit too, because we're in this old historical building down there and, uh, it seemed to fit. And, uh, you know, we like to say that, you know, the you know the repeal of prohibition the passage of the 21st amendment by you know fdr was kind of a you know return the you know the neighborhood gathering place back to um back to cities and that's what we're kind of that's what we encompass with uh with our pub there on second street you know, yeah i was i was reading about that the uh 40 different breweries before prohibition just in san francisco and now i uh, i think last count was like eight or nine um, yeah, it, it's it's not where it was, but it's there's more and more that are they're coming back online. And the, 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 you know the probably the real struggle right now is that it's expensive to do business in San Francisco, yeah. and um, you know you have to devote a large area to uh, production space uh, rather than retail space. So you know, and also neighbors and neighborhoods are not wanting. Um, breweries kind of next door because if you can believe it there are people out there that don't like the smell of breweries which i find fascinating because yeah, it smells great it's <laughs> just crazy but but that really seeing that number just kind of blew me away i don't think a lot of people really understand what prohibition meant to you know beer and when we see today all the craft breweries popping up around the country there there's been all that talk of you know when will the craft beer bubble finally pop Mm-hmm. And I think all those people saying that don't realize that there used to be, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 breweries in a city. And that was completely normal before Prohibition. Yeah, it, it, it is fascinating. Uh, it, it, of course, the the model has changed, you know, where there's yeah. now, you know, large breweries that have their hands on shelf space and tap space, uh, which which... Uh, and there's always that concern, you know, certainly this bubble that we keep talking about. I don't think it's actually going to go away. I honestly think that the, the brew pub concept is probably the most viable thing. I agree uh, totally. Beer concept out there because essentially you're a restaurant with this added value. And so if you can pick a good location and there's the demand 
and you can make great beer and most importantly with the brew pub you got to have a great restaurant you got to have great food because honestly that's the hardest part making the beer is easy i mean i was the only brewer at the pub you know we only produce a thousand barrels a year there uh maybe i had a guy working for me part-time but the restaurant employs like 45 people and it's like a it's a machine it keeps yeah. moving you have all those all that labor you got to be worried about all you know your your food costs your labor costs and all this and your food has to be great and your service has to be great so um but yeah, I agree with you. I think that that's that's gonna that's where you're if you want to get involved in this business, uh, that's a good place to go. Yeah, and I I agree with you totally. I don't think there is any such thing as that bubble. I mean, if you look at how much wine there is out there, and you look at how many breweries there used to be, the you know the the room to grow from the what eight or nine percent that craft beer is of all beer sales today, it's just yeah, imagine- huge. Jay Brooks, who runs the Brookstone Beer Blog, does this great analogy. And he says, imagine if you have a balloon and you only blow it up 10%. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's still more space. Yeah. And uh, I think that we're, you know, we're, we're slowly chipping away at kind of the big breweries um, hold on things. And actually, I think it's a completely different animal. I, I think... I think craft beer is just, it's completely different. It's like, you know, back in the old days, you'd go to, you know, when I was growing up, you know, Wonder Bread was the the bread. <laughs> and there are all these other white breads. And then people got into artisan breads and creating these unique breads with different flavors and different ingredients in them. And now you go to the beer, you go to the, excuse me, the bread wall, and it's there's so much out there. And it just keeps growing and growing. And uh, I think the same thing can be said with with beer. I mean, that you, know, you go to your local grocery store across the country, or your if you have or a liquor store wherever you buy your beer, and it's just, you know, the the magnitude, the the just the the girth of craft beer is is pretty enormous. And you've seen that with, you know, how the the large breweries are losing market share. They're having to buy craft breweries. Yeah. Um, you know, with AB's purchase of. Um, Goose Island and um, the other one, Blue Point, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, they're uh, they have a hard time creating their own uh, craft brands because uh, I don't think it resonates well with um, with the public, and also I don't know if they're good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, you know we're we're kind of a unique lot in a lot of ways. I mean, you talk to any person who's got involved in craft beer, I'm, I'm not, you know, unique. Uh, they've done something else before this and they've, you know, they've gotten into it and it's, it's, it's been an interesting ride and I think it will continue to get larger. Well, mentioning unique, that kind of brings me to uh, the next one of these beers I wanted to talk to you about was probably the most unique one I, I've, I think we're able to get at least in Pennsylvania or that comes to us is uh, Monk's Blood, um, you know, and by unique I mean great. It's it, I'm a big fan of Belgian beers and especially the the strong darks, and I think Monk's Blood is just great. But it's it seems to be kind of a left turn from a lot of the stuff you guys do. Yeah, it, you know, it, it, it's and you know, thanks for good words on it. Um, it was a. It was the I think it was the third beer we brewed um, after the Hello High Watermelon and the Brewfield IPA, um, and the reason we brewed it we we brewed this beer for uh, for uh, uh, Strong Beer Month, which is a month long festival we do in February at the pub. We do it with Magnolia Brewery, which is our my friend Dave McLean owns up in the Haight, 
And uh, kind of real quickly about the festival, because it's kind of neat, um, we, each brewery produces six strong beers, all over 8.5% alcohol, and you get a little card. And once you, you know, it's on the honor system, you get all the, the beers clicked off in the card, you get to keep the commemorative glass we have for the event. It's like the world's most expensive glass. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, we started the whole thing because February is one of the slowest times of the, of the year in kind of the restaurant industry. And uh, and it's just it's, it's blown up. And now like S- San Francisco Beer Week is in February, and you have a bunch of other festivals like the Barley Wine Festival at the Tornado, and there's a double IPA festival down in Hayward at the Bistro. Anyway, just background on that. And so this beer, Monk's Blood, was one of those beers one year that we made for Strong Beer Month, and it was actually a collaboration that we did with Sean Paxton, uh, the homebrew chef. And your listeners might know, great yeah. guy, in integrating beer into food and does great beer and food pairings but he also cooks with the with the beer makes a part of um of the menu uh, just a just a whiz guy just a complete madman uh, when it comes to cooking with beer and so that was this is a collaboration that we did with him and then we decided we wanted to put it out in the market and um and the whole idea behind it was to kind of showcase what was capable with the can the can really was secondary to the beer and so we brewed this dark strong, this Belgian dark strong ale with, you know, we, we put cinnamon in the mash, actually, maybe for like antioxidant purposes. I don't know if a lot of flavor comes through. And then we add dark candy sugar. We brew with the Belgian yeast. Um, and uh, we're using uh, dried mission figs. We age it on oak. We have uh, organic vanilla beans in there. It's a, it's this crazy beer. Uh, we have Belgian candy sugar, I think it's in that. And it's just, uh, it's one of those beers that you're you're you should not drink out of the can, <laughs> although I have. Yeah. And you should pour it and enjoy it in a glass and let it warm up a little bit. And you know the idea is that uh, there's, you know there's the can is just not about cheap beer. This is it's it can you can you can have a quality beer in there and you know this is just the package that it's coming to you in. Right, and along those lines, this isn't one that I, I'm I have in my little cooler here next to me today, but. Uh, the Lord of Boom barley wine is probably the other real big beer that that we get um, out around this way. Mm-hmm. Not really this time of year, but um, that that's another one that's really big. And yeah, these beers are so both the Monk's Blood and the Lord of Boom barley wine are part of what we call the Insurrection series beers, and it's an occasional series that we put out throughout the beer. And the beer comes in four packs, where the other beers come in six packs, and it's also available on draft. And uh, we don't make a lot of it. Uh, and these beers are a little bit more intense in flavor and certainly in alcohol. Um, and the Lower to Boom Barley Wine is an 11.5% alcohol um, barley wine uh, that, and it comes in a little 8.4 ounce, you know, kind of knit can. It's a, back in the day, um, barley wines that come in smaller bottles. Um, if you, maybe your listeners remember. Anchor had a, a small bottle, so did Sierra, and some of the other um, uh, imports did as well. I mean, because you know you don't want to drink a lot of it. And you know the idea behind this one, just like the monk's blood, is that it's meant to be poured in a glass and enjoyed and savored. Um, and uh, the can itself is uh, is like a gold ignit. Um, you know, it's like the whole backstory on it is that you know. Well, with all the insurrection beers, it's uh, Nico and I are kind of these, you know, these, these, these 
travelers through time and, and, mm-hmm. and space, kind of like going through these unusual situations. And in this one, we, Nico and I, it's like 1859, I think, and we're arriving for the um, for the gold rush in San Francisco, and we're 10 years too late, and we're we're sold this map by uh, um, Cornelius de Boom, was actually the name of a real person who was the Belgian consulate for a couple of years in San Francisco, and our alleyway is named de Boom, so hmm. named after him, and okay. and we. We go out, and the map tells us we have to go to the middle of the San Francisco Bay, and I go down in a diving suit, and <laughs> um, there's gold, and then there's beer, and Nico yells, you know, I'm running out of air, whatever happens, and I end up grabbing the, the, the beer instead of the gold. So, mm. um, you know, a beer that strong we call liquid gold. And, you know, like the other the other beers we put out, too, they're the insurrection beers like Hop Crisis, and... Uh, and allies win the war. There are always these kind of unusual stories that go along with it. But okay. um, anyway. Well, I know especially that um, another thing I kind of argue with people about, I hate going back to why cans are great, but a lot of people argue that, you know, you can't condition beer in cans or you can't age beer. And uh, I I have, um, from the first release we got around here at least, uh, a couple four-packs of the lower to boom aging. And... Yeah, you hit on a great point there, Brian. Um, we we actually we saved 110 cases of um, of the monk's blood from a couple of years ago, and we have two. We sell at the pub right now, and we have you know stickers on it say it's two years cellared, and it it tastes it tastes phenomenal. It's uh, um, had a little bit of yeast left over from uh, when we packaged the beer, so. It helps scavenge some of the oxygen from the can, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the the flavors have all kind of where they were fairly distinct. I think they've all kind of melded together. The you know the bitterness has dropped out. The malts come up. Um, figs are a little bit more prominent. Maybe um, it's a really interesting beer. Um, you should definitely give it a shot. Yeah, I mean, I I just tried one of the the lower to booms I had aged, and I was really impressed with how the the bitterness really seemed to kind of start to balance out in it. So that's even one year. So I'm hoping another year or two, it's going to be pretty wild. Yeah. I think there might be some great things might come out of that. Yeah. Um, so I noticed I was looking on your, uh, 21st amendments page and you said that right now you production brew in cold Springs or cold spring, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw you mentioned that you were looking to try and do a move your production all back to, San Francisco. Is that still something that's going to happen? Yeah, actually, um, that's happening right now. So okay. we, we've been, like I said, we've been brewing out in Cold Springs since 2008. And, um, you know, we've had some pretty steady growth out of them, but we've run out of capacity there. And um, we decided about a year and a half ago that we wanted to open up our own brewery here in the Bay Area. Um, and uh, we broke ground about two weeks ago on it's a big space. It's 95,000 square feet. Uh, and we've purchased a 100-barrel brewery from um, Hootman or Gia, uh, which is a German uh, tank manufacturer, brew house manufacturer. And actually the tanks uh, are being made at their uh, facility in Hudson, Wisconsin. And we've bought um, some large fermenters as well, and we're buying a state-of-the-art um, canning line from KHS as well as a kegging line and the idea is to bring the uh, production back to California um, and still use um, cold spring for as long as it uh, makes sense for us to use it but um, I'm really excited about it I like um, 
you know, the idea that, you know, Nico and I, we love beer, really, you know, and, and Cold Spring has been great, and we, you know, we, we owe a lot to our success to them, um, but it's something inside me, like, you know, as a brewer, wanted to bring it back home, and yeah. um, I'm really excited about that, and it's going to be an amazing facility. It's actually in an old Kellogg's factory where they used to make, you know, Pop-Tarts and Fruit Loops and whatnot, and uh so that's it's a unique space in the sense that it has a lot of power coming into it. it has a lot, has some great water and uh, the sewage, you know, uh, going out is is you know which is important when you make beer and mm-hmm. electricity. It's just a, it's got all those that infrastructure already in place and uh, really excited to be it be there. It's uh, we had a ground breaking ceremony a couple of days ago and uh, we're right on the other side of the fence from Drake's Brewery, which is a really popular. A local brewery, or actually owned by John Martin, who owned Triple Rock Brewery, gave me my start back in the day. Okay. And uh, we're right on the other side of the fence from them. And it's uh, um, there's uh, a couple of guys from Google that are opening up um, a brewery there as well. So it's like this kind of this small little uh, uh, microcosm of craft beer happening in San Leandro. And who'd have thought? I mean, it's a small little industrial hamlet right there, you know, right near Oakland, right near the Oakland Airport. And we're super excited. We're it's going to be a great uh, space. Um, phase one is to get the brewery up and running and have a tasting room, but we're also going to eventually have a uh, you know restaurant there with an outdoor beer garden and uh, you know very customer interactive space. We're going to have a tour of the facility and several different bars within the, the property as well as the restaurant and uh, a uh, also a public kind of indoor amphitheater space. Um, uh, and it was super excited about this. Uh, it's a, kind of a dream come true. I can't still believe it's happening. When the, you know, when, when the contractors started breaking ground there, I was, I was like, wow, this is, uh, this is really, this is happening right now. Yeah, and that's got to be nice to be once that's all finished to be able to go between brew pub and brewery without a plane being involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've I've spent a lot of time in airports. And I don't mind it. I love to fly. I love the whole romance of it. I like. I'm actually not. Uh, I don't have a problem with security or any of that. I just, to me, you know, there I'm, I become a little kid by looking out the window at 35,000 feet. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> so, uh, la- last beer I kind of wanted to talk to you about that I had uh, sitting sitting here was the one I kind of knew the least about this one. That's why I wanted to save it till last. Was the the he said. Mm-hmm. So I know it's two different beers. Uh, you and uh, Elzian Brewery or Brewing kind of collaborated on to make each of the beers. What? So you know, why is it called? He said. What's the whole story behind doing those two? Well, it, so Dick Cantwell, who's the owner and the brewmaster at Elysian Brewing Company up in um, up in Seattle, Washington, he's the pumpkin king. <laughs> <laughs> If, if if you like pumpkin beer and if you don't like pumpkin beer, Dick Cantwell is the guy that you blame for whether it's it's good or bad. Um, he has been making pumpkin beer at the Legion for a long time, and uh, he has a pumpkin beer festival every October um, where he invites brewers from all over the country to make pumpkin beers and send them out to him. And uh, I think he makes like 15 or 16 or it might even be more than that, different types of pumpkin beers. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, he's passionate about pumpkin beers. Uh, and so what he does, though, he has this unique way of getting you to make this beer because a lot of brewers are not into the idea at first, is he gets you drunk, he gets you to commit to it, and then he calls you the next day and follows up with you to make sure you'll do it. Huh. 
so I was part, I was in that, you know, certainly part of that idea. And, um, the reason we call it, he said is because, or he said, he said, you know, it's a play on, he said, she said, yeah. is because Dick and I are not clear on where the idea, how the idea came about and also how we met each other. <laughs> so we had fun with it, you know, on the package, there's words coming out of our mouth where, you know, I, I give a version of a story and then the words coming out of his mouth and he gives another version. So and this is part of our whole insurrection series as well. So we decided we'd have fun with it and we would do this like pumpkin variety pack where, where we, we each brewed, you know, we've had two different styles of beers and just to further complicate things. Well, one's a triple, a Belgian triple, which is brewed with, uh, you know, uh, pumpkin as well as um, Gall and Gall and, and, and Tarragon. And then the dark, there's a dark one, which is a Baltic porter that Dick came up with, which is brewed with caraway seeds and cinnamon and pumpkin. And the porter comes in a light color can and the triple comes in a dark color can to kind of even further the confusion of mm-hmm. this whole thing. And uh, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's pretty unique. It's, uh, so you get two, two flavors of, uh, of each beer in this box for a total of four. And it, it's, just, it's just a lot of fun. I love pumpkin beers. I think, you know, it's that time of year, you know, like the season, the fall season. And... Um, we just released it for the first time this past year, and uh, we're going to brew it again, um, again this year as well. And it's been it's been fantastic. I mean, we don't make a lot of it, uh, and we sell it on draft in these four packs. Now, I've I've had the Baltic style porter uh, before, and I think it's pretty great. But I'm a sucker for pumpkin beers. I think that's something else <laughs> a lot of people kind of rally against is the you know the pumpkin beer season that like everything else keeps getting pushed back. Uh, yeah, know... that's, that, that's kind of, and, and you know, as a company, we thought about that when we released these beers, because there are people that are releasing pumpkin beers in like August and, yeah. and it, it becomes ridiculous, you know? So we ship this beer on September one. So it lands like the second week of September, which I think is first, second week of September, which I think is uh, a good time to have a pumpkin beer in the market. And there's a lot of them out there. And, um, you know, some are okay. Some are some of them are better. I just think these are really unique in a sense because they're they're just interesting flavors. Uh, uh, they, you know, you got this Baltic porter, the strong beer, dark lager, and then you the cinnamon in there. I remember Dick wanted to put um, 17 pounds of cinnamon in the uh, in in the in the in the whirlpool in this beer, and I was like, 17 pounds? That seems like a lot of cinnamon for 75 <laughs> barrels. And his response was courage. <laughs> and, you know, and when the beer, you know, goes through its process and ferments out and ages, it, you know, it, it's not as intense and it kind of wraps around the caraway seeds and the dark malts of the Baltic Porter. And um, it works. I think it's, it's it definitely, it's a lot of fun. The interesting story about that, too, is that uh, we were coming up with ingredients um, and we, we were kicking around some stuff at a triple and he mentioned gall and gall. And I was like, I was like, I don't even know what Gall and Gall is. And he goes like, exactly. That's why we should put it in there. And I learned it as a Thai ginger and uh, kind of looked into it and did a couple of test batches. And we're like, yeah, this totally works. Yeah, there's a couple of those beers out there that have those really unique ingredients. I think most of them from like Dogfish Head. It, I'm sure that tastes great and makes the beer better, but I have no idea how to taste them. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, that's this all kind of circles back to the you know the start of this conversation, which was um, that's what's great about craft beer is you can really just have a lot of fun with it. You yeah, know, yeah. and I got to tell you, if the beer wasn't successful, you know, I, we wouldn't make it again. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. You know. Well, there's yeah, a uh, there, there's a brewer in Pittsburgh that kind of plays on that joke that a lot of brewers nowadays say they make pumpkin beers and really it's a tiny bit of pumpkin and the rest is all just spices. So yeah, it, yeah because pumpkin um, is is unique in a sense because it doesn't it, it it's not a real profound flavor and when people think about pumpkin beer they think about pumpkin pie and yeah. they they associate it with the spices. Uh, pumpkin actually adds a certain mouthfeel and a slickness to the beer um, that, uh, you know, that, that comes through. So um, we, it's, it's kind of amazing. We, we got these like 3,000 pound totes of pumpkin puree from this farm up wow. in, I think they're in Washington called Stall, Stallbush. And uh, when it arrived, we thought we would, because Dick had never really worked with like uh, pump, pumpkin uh you know packaged on that scale before but we needed it for you know the way we were how much we were going to brew and so we thought it had like this little spout on the bottom that you know you thought you'd tap into it and you know you pour it out well no no it's pumpkin puree you can't pour it so we had to Hmm. cut into this you know aseptic you know large sack essentially and scoop it out by hand into these stainless uh, buckets and add it in by you know one one bucket at a time it's pretty crazy Oh wow! De- definitely very homebrewy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, that's about everything I had to to talk to you about today. Um, you know, I learned a couple things that I didn't know about the beginning of Twenty First Amendment. Uh, I think it's great to hear about how you went from doing something that was very uninspired, job wise, to something that obviously hearing you talk, you love to do. Uh, I think that's what a lot of people kind of starting off as homebrewing or you know, working at lower levels of breweries kind of really want to do is they want to jump into that thing that they just love to do and don't care about the hours. Uh, to hear someone that did it, I think is just great. And it kind of gives, makes me happy to know that it can happen and it does happen. And that craft beer really kind of helps people get to where they want to be. Yeah. I, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. I think craft beer is an extension of what's happening in this country where people are becoming more and more concerned with what they put in their mouth and where that food comes from yeah. or those things come from. And so you have this whole renaissance of craft happening, you know, from, you know, uh, local butcher shops, chocolate, wine, cheese, bread, uh, any, anything that you see at your local farmer's market in a large part uh, kind of owes its um, – the the idea from craft beer, you know, the idea that you know, and those 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 early brewers in in this country, you know, your Ken Grossmans and your from Sierra and your Fritz Maytags, you know, they started their companies because they couldn't you couldn't really find that type of beer out here, you know, those were kids back then when they were kids in the in the 60s and 70s had gone to Europe and seen what you know what was being done with craft beer or what you know or the local beer there you know ales and, yeah. and the lagers and that wasn't happening out here and that had all been abolished and so they started home brewing and then they decided we kind of let's take it to another level and you're seeing that a lot of what's happening right now with brewers people getting involved in brewing and all those other industries I think it's uh, um, it's ex- it's exciting times um, in, in a lot of different areas uh, of what's happening with, you know, with food and drink. No, oh, definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, 
Well, Sean, thank you very much for taking the time today to talk to me. Um, I, I really appreciate it. You know, I'm, I'm sure you're a pretty busy guy. And I know Sundays are usually the one day out of the week that beer guys get to spend with family. So I, <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, I got to take my son down to his baseball game here in a little bit. And uh, actually, we're having a team barbecue, and I'm going to bring some uh, 2-1-8 canned beer down. And, uh, uh, Brian, honestly, uh, it, it's a pleasure talking to you. I love telling the story. I, I can't believe I get paid to do this job, honestly. <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 it is not lost on me for a second. I feel really blessed in that sense. And uh, definitely when I'm out in Pittsburgh, uh, next time, which will probably be happening actually this year, uh, you and I should meet up and uh, toss back a few pints. Definitely. I'll show you a couple of favorite places. Excellent. Well, Sean, thanks again. Everyone else, thanks for listening. Um, until next time, cheers. <laughs>